0: Have you ever been in an extremely desperate situation, so desperate that unless God did a miracle, you would not get through your situation? Have you ever been so desperate that you would die if God didn't intervene? Well, we've been talking about Esther, the queen of Persia, for the last few weeks, and Esther was so desperate to come to a place of such great desperation that she called on her cousin Mordecai, who was a prominent Jewish leader in the uh, Persian court. She calls him to get all the Jewish people together to fast and to pray for her. Well, let me tell you the story. Let me tell you how she came to this place of such extreme desperation. Our story goes back to uh, 480 BC, and Xerxes is in fact the the emperor of what we call the Persian Empire. And the green star represents the, sort of the, the center of the empire. And this, this Xerxes, this King Xerxes of the Persian Empire, he has got great designs on the whole world. He wants to take over the world. And so we, we, we recognize that Persia is, in fact, modern-day Iran. Uh, but but only extended into Afghanistan, to the very borders of India, the very borders of Greece up to uh, the far left there, into Libya and Egypt, uh, and then quite far into the north. So you recognize that this 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 king uh, of Persia is quite a, a remarkable man. He's actually following in the footprints of his, predecessor, his predecessors. You may have heard of Cyrus the Great. He was actually the founder of the Persian Empire. Uh, his father, Darius was another great warrior and conquered many parts of the world. And this is what Xerxes inherited. Well, let's go back to 490 BC when Darius I attacks Greece. And uh, you may remember the story of how the Persians attacked Greece at Marathon, a little town in Marathon. I've been, there. Uh, I've been there a number of times when I lived in Greece. And the, the Athenians who are approximately 25 miles from Marathon, were just waiting on the edge of their seat to find out what was going to happen. Uh, were they about to be taken over by the cruel Persians? Were they about to be put to death? Uh, what was going to happen? And, and if you know the story, you know that the generals who, uh, who, who led the Greek forces were incredible, and they were actually able to conquer the Persians. And so this young man runs all the way from Marathon to Athens to tell the Athenians the good news. Now, I think most of us know that a marathon, a marathon which is 25 miles long, I believe it's 25 miles long. I I looked it up, actually, and it gives you different numbers. So I I don't know, Greg, what is it? Is it 25 miles? 26 miles? Okay, there you go. I I Googled it, folks. I tell you, I had 23.4, I had 25, twenty-six point this. But we know now that it's 26 miles, Uh, And that's really where the marathon comes from. It's from this young man running and telling the good news to the Athenians. Well, it was good news for the Greeks, good news for the Athenians, but it was bad news for the Persians. In fact, the Persians were holding this massive grudge against Greece. you notice that they're just on the edge of Greece. They can't quite get into Greece. And King Xerxes says, well, I am now going to take revenge upon these these nasty, stubborn little Greeks. Uh, we are going to conquer them, and so what he does, and you read this in Esther chapter one, is he calls together all his generals, all the military men, calls together the the guys that are good at logistics, calls together his accountants, and and they take six months to plan this invasion into Greece, and and during this six months they have banquets and. And the king is displaying his military might and his power. And they are coming up with a great plan. At the end of the 180 days, they have got themselves a great plan. And Xerxes is very, very uh, enthusiastic and optimistic. He knows that he can win this battle. And so he decides, well, we're going to have ourselves a nice big party. And so for seven days, it's drinking and eating and partying. Uh, like you've never seen. During the party, during the banquet, the king thinks, you know what? I've shown off all of my, all of my military uh, might and my military assets and my great wealth. I like to show these guys what a beautiful wife I've got. So he gets his servant and says, look, go get my wife. Go get her, bring her in here because I want everybody to see her. So the servant is thinking, oh boy, this is not going to go well. Telling a woman to come and show off in front of her husband's friends, but he goes and says to Queen Vashti, uh, "The king is is calling for you. He wants you to come, and he wants you just to reveal your beauty to his generals and his officials." Well, there's no way on earth Vashti's having any of that. She is not going to go and show off her body and her beauty to anybody except to her king. So she just flatly refuses, "I'm not coming." And the, you can just imagine the servant thinking, oh, please, don't be difficult. Please don't make this hard for me because I'm the one that's gonna bear the brunt of this anger. Please just come. And she just says, no, I'm not coming. Servant goes back to the king and says, uh, Queen Vashi is not coming. She refuses. She's not coming. He is now furious. What do you do with your wife when she won't obey you? Well, he doesn't quite kill her, <laughs> but he says to his court, guys, his wise, the wise guys, the wise men, what should, we, what should I do? I'm sure he's thinking, I'd like to kill her, but the wise men say, well, look it, you know what, if we let her get away with this, if we do nothing, then that means that of the 50 million people in our empire, half of them are women, that's going to mean that, that 25 million women have the right to do whatever they want. This is going to cause terrible confusion and uproar in the kingdom. We cannot allow this to happen. A women's liberation movement will break out. We'll have to wait a few years for that. So the queen is deposed, kicked out of office. You're not allowed to be the queen anymore. Get out of my sight and... We're going to find ourselves a new queen. And that's really how Esther becomes the queen of the Persian Empire. This Jewish girl, a beautiful Jewish girl, chosen amongst 50 million people in the empire. And you can imagine the king has got all kinds of beauties coming before him. The most beautiful women out of 50. We're talking about a lot of beautiful women. And you can imagine this king trying to think, well, which, which one should I pick? I mean, after a while, they must start all looking alike, right? They're just, just beautiful, beautiful women. But Esther comes along, and she stands out. There's something that's really different about her. She's not just beautiful on the, on, on the outside. She's beautiful on the inside. And she says, uh, she, just, she just just very lovingly, very gently, very graciously, with great poise, she talks to the king, the king falls in love with her, and he says, she's the one. I want Esther. And so Esther goes through a whole process of beauty treatments. I'm talking, I think it's like a year of beauty treatments. It's like every woman's dream come true. Massages, creams, oils, being waited on hand and foot. Esther was in the lap of luxury. She was going to be the, king of the, or the queen of the Persian Empire, She she had everything at her disposal, and I'm telling you, uh, she thought she'd won the lottery. And some would say, in fact, that she had because it didn't get any better than that. Well, what what Queen Esther didn't understand is that God was positioning her for a reason. God was putting her in this position as queen of the Persian Empire for a reason. God is about to do something extraordinary. And we see the hand of God at work. And we're going to talk about more of that in just a moment. But understand this, folks. Some of you are sitting here today, and you've got problems that you're facing. In fact, big problems, and and all kinds of problems. You've got what we would might call an impossible situation that you're facing. And quite frankly, you're looking for a miracle. You need a miracle. And it, it may be something very personal, it may be something that everybody knows about, but suffice it to say, you need God to move in and do something big in your life. Here's what you need to know before we go any further. God wants to do that miracle for you. If, if I've learned anything over the years from reading my Bible, I know that God wants to work in my life and God wants to answer my prayers. But here's the other thing that I learned is that God is not a magic genie. You rub the lamp, out oh, pops Robin Williams with his, with his uh, invitation to make three wishes. That's not God. The thing that I've learned about prayer and about asking God for his help is that what God wants me to do is he wants me to get my heart and my mind aligned with his heart and his mind. He wants me to know what's in his heart. He wants me to know what his purpose is. So often when we go into prayer, and this is why a lot of people don't believe in prayer, they say, I tried it once and it didn't work. What you need to know about prayer is that you're not going to God to tell him how to do his job. This notion of the idea that I'm gonna go to God and I'm gonna tell him, God, do you know what's going on in this world? There's big problems going on here. So God, this is what I want you to do. This is not how we deal with God. We go before God understanding that God knows what's going on in this world. What God wants to do is he wants to use you and me. He wants us to get aligned with his purpose so that we can do what he wants us to do. Which brings us back to Esther. Esther discovers that she's got an enemy and here's what happens. Haman, who's one of the king's high officials, has been honored by the king and he has been given permission to march through the streets and get everybody to bow down to him. You get that? But there was one pesky Jew. His name was Mordecai. So Haman is going down the streets of the city of Susa and just basking in all the splendor and the glory that's his because he has been honored by the king of Persia. Everybody's bowing down, and you'll see on Mordecai's right, there's people, they're licking his boots, they're licking the ground, they're as low as you can go, bringing honor to Haman, but not Mordecai. He's not having it. Mordecai's not bowing down to anybody. Now, some would think, well, Mordecai, why are you being so stubborn? Why are you being so proud? Why are you being so arrogant? Why don't you just get on board and do it? Don't, don't ruffle anybody's feathers. Don't rock the boat. Just, just do what you have to do and you know, cross your fingers as you bow and that means it doesn't count or doesn't mean anything. But Mordecai won't do it, and here's why. Because Mordecai is a Jew. Mordecai worships the one and only true God. Mordecai believes that his God is one God and only God. And for him to bow down to Haman would be tantamount to idolatry. There's no way that he can bow down and worship Haman. So he refuses. Well, Haman is livid and he is going to get revenge on Mordecai. Not only does he want to see Mordecai put to death, he wants all of Mordecai's people put to to death. Now, this is, this is really disproportionate, isn't it? Mordecai, you're gonna die, and all of your people, all the Jewish people with you are going to die. Now, Mordecai, when he hears about this plot to kill all the Jews, is mortified. He puts on sackcloth. He puts, on, he puts ashes on his head. He wails. Uh, he prays. He cries out to God. Esther finds out about it. Esther, the queen. Esther, who's his cousin, she says Mordecai, what are you doing? Like you're you're just this is so undignified. How could you go through the streets looking like this and what what's what is so urgent? And so Mordecai says, here's, here's what's going to happen. Haman has dis- declared that in 1 year from now all of us, all the Jewish people are going to die. And then Mordecai says, and don't think for 1 minute Esther you're going to escape this. You're Jewish. And the law that the king passed, we talked about this last week, the law that the king passed says that all Jews die. And folks, I got to tell you about this because uh, it's important to understand why this is so important. The king created a law. We call it the law of the Medes and the Persians. And once that law is passed, not even the king can go against his own law. And so, if the law says that all Jews die, even though Esther is safe in the luxurious courts of the king, she's going to die too. She is finished. So, what does Mordecai want Esther to do? Mordecai wants Esther to go to the king and to plead their case. But the problem is, one doesn't just walk into the throne room of the king or the emperor of the Persian empire. One just doesn't do that. In fact, here's what Esther says. Anyone who appears before the king in his inner court without being invited is doomed to die unless the king holds out his gold scepter. Everybody knows this. Nobody dares walks into the presence of the king without being invited. And Esther says, if I do this, I will surely die. And by the way, Esther says, the king has not called me into his presence for some 30 days. I don't know if he's mad at me. I don't know if he's glad about me. I don't know what he thinks of me. But the chances are, if I go into his presence without being summoned or invited, I'm going to die. So here's Esther in a position to go into the intimidating throne room of King Xerxes the emperor of the Persian empire her job is to go to the king and make a request to save her people now what could be so hard about esther going to the king and asking for help i mean it's it's her husband and she's the she's the top woman in the empire what could be so hard about this what could be so difficult about going to her husband. I mean, Gloria is not terrified about coming to ask me for anything. She never, a, she doesn't fret about her chew her nails and she has to go p- pray and fast before asking me to go shopping. Alan, can you pick up some eggs? Can you go get, pick up Sarah from work? She's not terrified. She, Gloria will ask me for anything, anytime. In case you don't know who Gloria is, that's my wife. <laughs> She'll ask me for anything. And sometimes when you read this story, you don't understand the deeper implications of what, Mordecai's asking Esther to do. I'm going to tell you, Esther's not his only woman. He's got other wives. He's got concubines. Concubines, not porcupines. (laughs) Concubines are women who are there for his pleasure. And um, Esther doesn't know if she is really his favorite. I mean, he hasn't talked to her for 30 days. I can, can you imagine if I didn't talk to my wife for 30 days? I probably wouldn't be the pastor anymore. <laughs> this is serious stuff, folks. And not only that, but think of what happened to Queen Vashti. She just refused to come and see him, and, and that's it. You're, there's a divorce. You're, you won't come and see me when I call you. That's it. I'm done with you. You're not my wife anymore. All this is going through Esther's head, and to make matters worse, <laughs> Esther knows that this guy is a bit of a lunatic. He's got a bad temper, a really bad temper. In fact, she knows that just the year before she was being called to be the queen. That just the year before, King Xerxes sent out his army, and that army was sent out to to, to attack Greece again. And these pesky Greeks—they just can't seem to win over them. Some of you have seen the movie 300. It's based on these battles between the Persians and the Greeks. The Greeks were stubborn. They didn't just roll over and die. They fought. And so Xerxes now, after six months of planning, and, and uh, he's going to tackle them again. But the year before, man, he had, he had a really hard time with these Greeks. He calls his uh, engineers together. said, look, we need to get across this, this channel from Turkey into, into Greece. It, some of you, if you, know your, if you know any of your war history, it's, uh, it's where Gallipoli is. And so how are they going to get across that, that water strait? How, how are they going to get across that, that, that strip of water? Well, he gets his engineers to, to build a bridge. And the engineers were actually quite brilliant. They, what they did is they just took a bunch of boats and lined them up side by side from one shore to the other shore. So we've got these boats that are lined up side by side from Turkey all the way to Greece. We're talking about a kilometer and a half. And then what the engineers did is they put a planking down across and built a proper road with these boats underneath just supporting them. I think it's really quite brilliant. The problem is, is that this is not a river they're putting a a, a bridge across. This is part of the sea. And... And if anybody knows that part of the world, you know that the sea is shallow and, and the storms there, when the wind comes up, we've got terrible waves happening. Well, that's exactly what happened before anybody was able to get across. The storms came up and destroyed the bridge. Well, Xerxes is furious. He's mad at everything. He says, call the engineers together. And you think, well, the engineers are gonna come and give their, their, their report? No, no. Chop off their heads, that'll teach them. Heads are chopped off, engineers are dead. And then Xerxes says, and that pesky sea, we have to deal with that as well. So he calls the soldiers, go and whip the sea 300 times, that'll teach them a lesson. Did you hear that? Whip the sea 300 times. This guy's a lunatic. And not just whip the sea 300 times. We're going to flog the sea. We'll teach the sea a lesson. That'll teach the sea for getting in the way of my plans. He tells the soldiers to throw shackles, like uh, uh, handcuffs. Throw that into the water. We're going to handcuff the sea. We're going to teach the sea that they are, the sea is subject to King Xerxes. And more than that, get some hot, red-hot pokers and start stabbing the sea. We're going to teach the sea a lesson. So the soldiers are like, okay, he's the king. We just do whatever he says. Everybody's thinking this guy's a wingnut. And you think Queen Vashti or Queen Esther doesn't know this? She knows this guy's not only got a bad temper, but he's a bit of a lunatic. This is the guy that Mordecai is saying, Esther, go talk to him. Go and tell him that you need his help. Imagine Esther's stress. She dies if she does nothing because she's Jewish and all the Jews are gonna die in a year. And she dies if she approaches the king with her problem. This is what my grandfather called being between a rock and a hard place. You know what I'm talking about. Some of you here today are between a rock and a hard place in your own life. You've, you are here this morning, like Esther, stressed out of your mind. You don't see a way forward. And it may be a career thing, it may be a health thing, it may be something in your marriage, your family, your kids. And the question is is this, what do you do when you're facing a disaster? What, What does Esther do? What would you do if you were in Esther's shoes? Well, here's what Esther does. First of all, she decides, well, there's a greater chance of survival if I go to the king. If I do nothing, I'm dying for sure. So I'm actually gonna do that. She makes up her mind, yes, that is what I'm gonna do. But she knows that she, and she's not so naive as to think that she's just going to march into the king's presence. She needs a strategy. She needs the right words to say. She knows that if she's going to go before the king, she can't just march into his throne room and say, you are a murderer, you, you horrible man. You... hater of the Jews, she can't do that. What's she gonna do? And then there's that pesky law about going before the king. So she needs to get this right. She needs to do the right thing. She needs to make the right move. And here's the thing, folks. And I want the spirit of God to speak to your heart right now. Because whatever difficulty or struggle or problem you're facing right now, You probably have your own first steps in mind, the things that you need to do. But we need to take a lesson from Esther's book. We need to learn what Esther did. And the very first thing that Esther does is she says, we gotta pray. We gotta pray and fast. And so she says to her cousin Mordecai, go and gather together all the Jews of Susa. Remember that green star? That's where Susa was. Gather all the Jews of the city and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, and I will do the same. And then, though it's against the law, it's punishable by death, I will go in to see the king. And if I must die, I must die. Now, the first step in facing that situation that you're in right now, and maybe you're not, but I gotta tell you, all of us have these times, these moments in our life that just, it's do or die, it's, it's an impossible situation. The first step that you need to remember that you need to take is always to go to God in prayer and fasting first. See, our, our natural inclination, I gotta run to mom and dad and ask for help. I gotta run to the banker and ask for help. I gotta run to the pastor. I gotta run here. I gotta do this. I gotta go. I gotta take matters. I gotta sit down. I gotta figure this out. Esther understands what she needs to do. She needs to get before God and ask God for help. She needs to get serious and make it clear to God and all the people around her, she is dead serious about getting the help of God. And so she prays and fasts. Now, some of you are sitting here today saying, Pastor, what exactly is prayer and fasting? What is that all about? Well, let me just quickly tell you. Fasting and prayer, first of all, is what we call focused praying. You pray instead of eating. So during that time when you would normally have your, 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 your breakfast, uh, your lunch, or your supper, uh, or your snack, or your snacks, or your many snacks, instead of eating, what you're going to do is you're going to pray. You're going to demonstrate to God that you mean business. In fact, what you're going to do is you're going to say, God, I'm forgetting about myself now. I'm getting to focus off of me, off of my own wishes, my own wants, my own pleasures, and I'm focusing directly on you. That's what fasting and prayer is. She's so desperate that she's willing to give up food, not just for one day, but for three days and nights, food and drink. And then here's the next thing you need to know about fasting and prayer, is that it is having an attitude where we reject inevitable disaster. Some of us are sitting here today thinking, man, the problems I'm facing right now, the outcome is inevitable, there's nothing I can do about it, I might as well throw up my hands and quit. But when you fast in prayer, you're saying, hold on a minute here, I worship the God of the impossible. I believe that God is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above anything that I could ever ask or think. What looks hopeless or impossible to me is absolutely possible with my God. When you fast and pray, your attitude is, I'm saying no to Satan, I'm saying yes to God. God's gonna get me through. And the next thing you need to understand is that fasting and prayer is an act of faith in the sovereign God. Remember what faith is? Faith very simply is believing God and doing what he says. Let's say it again. Faith is, believe God. So we understand that fasting is absolutely something that Jesus tells us to do. In fact, Jesus says, after I leave this earth, my disciples are gonna fast and pray. Now, some of you have been Christians for many years. You've never fasted and prayed in your life. Could it be that life just hasn't gotten desperate enough? But I'm telling you today, What you need to do is you need to put faith in the sovereign God. Remember the very first week, we gave you the definition of sovereignty. What does sovereign mean? It means it's supreme power, supreme authority. And that's who our God is. This is what we teach. This is our theology. We believe that God is sovereign overall. And God is more powerful. I don't know if you know this, but God is more powerful even than the emperor, emperor of Persia. Well, Hell will continue to utter its ugly threats against you and me. But I'm going to tell you, folks, the time for sitting by and crying, chewing our nails, and laying down and dying, it's got to come to an end. We've got to we got to actually all rise up and say, enough is enough. Satan, you've messed with my marriage. You've messed with my health. You've messed with my with my kids, my family. What I'm going to do now is I'm going to stand up, and I'm going to I'm gonna fast and I'm gonna pray and I'm gonna focus on God and I'm gonna believe God for a miracle. I wonder today, how many of us need a miracle in our lives? You just wave at me right now. Just, Just totally being totally honest. There's a lot of hands waving at me. Hi. I want you to know, folks, that the very core of the teaching of scripture is that we have a God who's very personal and loves us. He doesn't judge us. He doesn't condemn us. He calls us to himself. So that we can receive our help, receive his help, and receive what we need because he cares about us. When you fast and pray, you're saying, God, here am I. I'm listening. I'm listening to what you say. God, I'm get, I want to get my mind and my heart aligned with your mind, and your heart. And by the way, can I just tell you this? And we're going to find out more about this next week. As Esther is praying and fasting, God gives her step two, step three, step four. He gives her a strategy, which you're going to hear about next week. It's pretty thrilling. But in the meantime, as we look at our community struggling and suffering, as we look at our kids, maybe not serving God our grandchildren far from God, it's time for us to say, God, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to begin to fast and pray. and I'm going I'm to claim my kids, my community, my grandkids for God. God, I'm going to ask that your Holy Spirit be poured out upon the people in my life. God, I want to see a revival happen. And Esther understood this. Esther understood the importance of prayer and believing God. And I want to ask you the question this morning. Do you believe that God is able to help you through what you're going through? Do you believe that God can get you through? Do you think God has got a solution? That God has got a plan? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, you need to understand that the answer to that question is yes, God does have a plan. God does care about you. God does want to do something special in your life. Your marriage in crisis right now? Kids aren't serving God. You want to see them serving God. You're wondering about your career, your future, maybe your health. I want you to know that God wants to help you. I remember it's a time in my life before Gloria and I were even going out. Some of you have heard me share this before. But I came to the place all of a sudden one day and I thought to myself, I hate being alone. I don't like being a bachelor. I don't want to be alone anymore. I want to get married. And I didn't want to just, I mean, I'm a pastor. I'm in the ministry. You just can't just choose anybody. It's a special task, special work. And so I decided one weekend I was going to shut myself in. I wasn't going to go anywhere. I wasn't going to answer my phone. I was just going to pray and fast and ask God to give me the answer to my prayer. And I'm not going to say, I'm not saying that God's going to do this for everybody the same way, but this is how it worked for me. I got on my knees. I got myself a nice little bench to kneel down at. I prayed, began to pray and say, God, please, I need a wife. I don't want to be alone anymore. And... I'm going to tell you, I didn't have to be on my knees for a whole weekend. I just was—I was just kneeling before God, and, and literally within minutes, the answer came to me. And in my mind, I saw Gloria, and I knew that she was the one for me. And we've been married 28 years this August. That was pretty weak, folks. 28 years. Hello. Never mind how desperate are you? How desperate are you to see God work in your life, to see God change your life around? You know, interestingly, when when the Jewish people of Susa heard what was going down, it says in Esther chapter 4, verse 3, it says, as the news of the king's decree reached all the provinces that all the Jews were going to die, there was great mourning among the Jews. They fasted they wept and wailed, and many people lay in burlap and ashes. Have you done that yet? How desperate are we really? We say we're desperate, but are we really willing to do whatever it takes to see God move and to perform that miracle? We're talking about fasting and prayer today. as God's way of getting us focused and aligned with his mind and his purpose. Do God says to to the Jewish people through the prophet Joel. Turn to me now while there's time. Give me your hearts. Come, look at this, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. I believe that God wants to do something special in our church and something special in your family, particularly in your life. And I believe that this is the time. And so what we decided as a staff is that over the next 30 hours, We're going to ask you to join us in prayer and fasting. Go and have your lunch. And then after lunch, I'm asking you to fast through the night to the next day. And then join us tomorrow here at 6 o'clock p.m. where we will worship, we'll pray together, we'll have communion together, and we'll just ask God to do that miracle that, that you need in your life. And then afterwards, we're, we're going to break the fast with some snacks right here. And those who want to go out and have supper with their small group or with whomever, you're welcome to do that. But we're believing God to do a miracle in your life. And so if you'd like to join us in this, I'm, I, I have no idea who is going to join us in this, but I can tell you that, that we're going to be having the church open all through the night. There'll be people here praying and fasting if you want to come in the middle of the night, come and join us in prayer and fasting. But right after lunch, from now till tomorrow, we're asking you to pray and to fast and, and to show God how desperate you are for a miracle in your life. How I many you know that God is a God of miracles? God wants, God wants to do something special for you. On Friday night, I was, uh, we, had, we had all the youth over to our house. And the kids had all broken up into small groups, and there was a group sitting on the floor in the kitchen. Glory was in there on the floor, sitting on the floor with Shauna and then a number of the youth and Caitlin. And all of a sudden water began to drip. Was, how many know it was raining on Friday? It was supposed to be a barbecue at our house, but there was a barbecue inside. And water is leaking down from the light fixture, And Nicholas runs and runs and gets me, "Dad, we've got water leaking in. What are we going to do? So I came. I took a look at the water dripping. I said, oh, "Don't worry about it. Just put out some pots and pans." So just get the picture. Pots and pans out catching water leaking from our light fixture. And Nicholas said, like, "Dad, aren't you upset about this?" Now I've got an insurance agent, and the insurance will cover that. It won't be a problem. I hope. <laughs> but I didn't. I didn't. I was upset about it. It wasn't a problem. Well. I got a call from Delson this past week telling us about a storm that went through Rumange in Burundi. And it ripped the roofs off of our, well, first of all, off of our church there in, in Burundi. This, uh, this is the uh, Mutambara church in Rumange, the cross church. But I found out, you told me that there were actually two other churches and also a school that lost its roof. And so I said to Delson, I want you, Delson, to go and I want you to pray. I want you to gather the church together to fast and pray for a miracle, that God would raise the money, that God would provide the money so that we could put the roof back on the church. And so he said what he did is he gathered together with the other two churches. So there's three churches having a prayer meeting and the school joined in and they're praying that God would meet the need for a roof. Well, up on the screen there, $1,800 represents one roof. Now, for us, 1800 bucks, most of us could put that on our credit card. For these people, $1,800 represents actually uh, not just a year's salary, but year's salary for one person. So if you sort of put that in, in, in context, I mean, for them, it may as well be a million dollars. It's a huge amount of money. And so I said to them, look, you begin to pray and fast and believe that God's going to meet the need. And so after, after Delson told me, it's early in the early hours of the morning, just last night, he told me that, that there were actually other churches. And I thought to myself, wouldn't it be cool if Cross Church Winnipeg could not just provide a new roof for Cross Church Mutumbara, but that we could also provide a roof for those other churches? So I said, we're going to pray and we're going to fast about this. And so this morning, what we've done is we've put... Some baskets up here with some envelopes. And at the end of the service, I'm going to invite you, you don't, no, no pressure, no stress, if you'd like to come and fill in an envelope and put some money in the envelope to help meet the need of this church, I want you to know there's people over in Burundi who are praying and fasting, even now, that God would meet the need. And I thought to myself, we're in a position where we can meet that need. So this morning, as we, as we go into prayer, I'm going to ask that God would speak to your heart and show you what it is that he wants you to do, if anything at all. Some of you are just saying, Pastor, I'm not in a position to do anything right now. Not a problem. If all you can do is five bucks, you want to throw it in the plate, you can do that. But there's no pressure. But wouldn't it be cool if we could replace the roof on our church and also the other two churches? Would you join me in prayer? Stand together, please. God, as we are thinking about our own situations our own problems and difficulties and struggles that we have to face. Uh, God, we pray that uh, you would give us the courage to take the step of faith, to fast and to pray, Uh, beginning right after lunch today and and then ending tomorrow after we've worshipped and prayed and had communion together. We pray, God, that you would do miracles in the hearts and the lives of everybody here today. And not just for us, God. But for the people in Burundi who are so desperate, in such desperate need. God, even as we are asking you to do the impossible for us, God, we're praying that you would use us to do the impossible for the people in Burundi. And so God, we thank you this morning for the privilege it's ours to to call you our Father. The privilege it's ours to, to have you working in our lives. And not just working in our lives, but working through us to be a blessing to others. So we commit ourselves to you now, thanking you in Jesus' name. And everyone said it with me. Amen. Amen. God bless you as you give.